Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be, and welcome to the Super Travel Experience Podcast. This is episode 39, and this is your host, Mark, aka Motivational Mark. I changed my name, first name Motivational, last name Mark. That's it. Yes. We're going strong, episode 39. I know it's been a few days, but I've been busy with a brand new podcast called Planet Positivity. And so far, you could uh, check it out here on Podbean. That's my new new project I'm working on. I'm already four episodes in. I'm going for 10 in 10 days. That's my goal. To, uh, it's a little challenge. I like to challenge myself since it's the new year. Every week I have a, a challenge, whether it's physical, mental, whatever, anything. Just I love to challenge myself and push the limits and get better. All right, this is, like I said, episode 39. Episode 40, hopefully, is going to be with my friend Jed coming up this weekend. Uh, I want to talk to him about the Galapagos Islands that he was uh, recently visited off the coast of Ecuador. So uh, in this podcast, I just want to go over uh, reasons, more reasons why, um, you know, I might as well just talk about real fast too the four episodes I already covered on my other podcast. Uh, the first episode was on a positive mindset. I covered that on this pod uh, podcast on the last show with the book review, and that was pretty much the gist of that podcast episode. And then the second one, I talked about courage, how to be courageous, why it's important to be courageous. And then the third one was purpose on finding your purpose and meaning in life. And then the one I just uh, downloaded recently was on self-discipline, why it's important to build habits and self-discipline is the root of all good things and that sort of stuff. So if you're into that stuff, that self-help stuff, feel free to check it out, uh, Planet Positivity. And This podcast, I just want to go over, uh, I probably went over it before, but I'd like to go over it again on why uh, traveling makes us happy and um, that traveling is the secret to happiness, at least one of the secrets. There's many different quote-unquote secrets, but here's uh, one of the... Here we go. So science proves that travel is the secret to happiness. Here's an article. The science is in and experts agree you should spend all your money on travel right now. (laughs) I mean, they didn't say that in so many words, but the inference was definitely there. Any spare cash you've got should be going straight into the holiday bank account and made use of as soon as possible because that's the secret to happiness. As you probably already knew or know this, it's nice to have it confirmed. A recent study at Cornell University found that spending money on experiences is more likely to bring you lasting happiness than spending money on material objects. The reason being that people adapt to physical objects, meaning that the things you've bought will bring decreasing amounts of happiness as time goes on and you get used to having them around. Whereas those one-off experiences will look back upon with joy and it only increases those amazing, unique experiences traveling around the world or traveling around your state or traveling around your city. So spending loads of money on a fancy car, a watch, a dress, a phone, a house, is not going to bring you everlasting happiness. You'll just become used to those things. The iPad you bought will be amazing when you pull it out of the box and then boring after it's been played with for a few weeks. And by the time three or four months have passed, you'll be complaining that what a pile of uh, junk it is and looking at ways to upgrade. Anyways, shell out cash or your money on a fleeting experience, however, something as simple as visiting an art gallery gallery, jumping out of a plane, or eating an amazing meal, and you just presented yourself with a personal gift that will keep on giving. You won't become sick of the memories. On the contrary, you'll make you happier and happier as time goes on. Those who've been bitten by the travel bug have known this for a long time. There's nothing you could buy in a shopping mall that can compare to the joy of rocking up in a foreign country and preparing to explore it. There's no house or car fancy enough to be able to top the thrill of being in a place where you don't speak the language and have no idea what to do. 
Even the bad travel experiences wind up being good for you. How many times have you found yourself regaling regaling people with your tales of travel gone wrong like the time you got food poisoning in mexico or the time you missed a flight after after oktoberfest or the time a guy ripped you off in india or the time you just missed out on the coronavirus in china or going through the airport in hong kong just after before they closed the airport due to the protesters and you're laughing about this stuff but you're boasting about it as well if you ever needed a demonstration of the power of experience of happiness then that is it even those nightmare episodes when everything goes wrong tend to be looked back upon fondly. They still make you smile years and years later. It happens constantly. Um, this person who wrote the article is talking about a time in Jaipur, India, uh, where they were drawn into an international gold smuggling ring. What? And was scared for her life, making a run for it down a dark corridor one night to get away from my new friends and half expecting to hear gunshots be ringing behind me. <clears throat> but... She survived, obviously, and now look back on that craziness as a character-building exercise that I wouldn't swap for all the objects in the Sky Mall catalog. That's a little bit crazy, but definitely uh, you want to look at it positively. And yeah, I wouldn't want to go try to get those kinds of experiences, death-defying, like going to a terrorist country or something like that would not be really fun but the good news is that you don't have to naively wander in a smuggling ring to become happier anything you do while you travel will bring success splash out loads of money on amazing experience will do it sl slumming it on a budget at a hostel will do it running around checking off tourism highlights will do it just the same as hanging around in a cafe for an entire day will do it there's no wrong way to make it happen all you have to do is commit to leaving home to seeing the world instead of trying to secure ownership over little pieces of it. See, do, eat, drink, explore, run the full gamut of experience. Travel, after all, is everything. It's joy, it's fear, it's love, it's hate, it's surprise, it's confusion. It makes you smarter, it makes you happier. Why would you spend your money on anything else? Brilliant article that is science proves that, that travel is the secret of happiness. That's by Ben Groundwater. All right, and then we're going to go into 10 reasons why traveling makes us happy. Definitely love these articles on travel and the relationship to happiness and positivity. Planet Positivity is like my main <clears throat> podcast that talks about all that self-help stuff, but I like how it correlates to travel and like traveling helps build confidence, all sorts of stuff. I think it talks about it in this article. Here, number one, according to science, travel is the secret to happiness. I just went over that Cornell University uh, study from 2017. Spending money on experiences rather than physical objects makes us happier. The reason we adapt to objects, like I said, just said. Number two, travel increases self-confidence. This is huge. Most people have low self-confidence and this will help boost your self-confidence. According to a study done by uh, booking.com, I guess, reported by Marie Claire, 65% of travelers surveyed find that their first experiences abroad boosted their confidence. A psychologist and blogger also uh, named Amandine Legrand believes that travel is good for self-confidence because it offers many opportunities to excel without external pressures and at your own pace. Number three, travel allows us to get to know ourselves better. Especially when you travel solo. There's benefits to traveling solo, traveling with one person, traveling with a group of people, you know, traveling with, with different people. It brings out different experiences. It's, I think it's good to travel solo because it brings you and takes you out of your little box if you're or bubble if you're traveling with a group or one person, you're, you're stuck in a bubble just talking to each other because uh, 
if your soul, you're forced out of your comfort zone, you're forced to talk to people, you're forced to ask directions, you're forced to find things, you're forced to rely only on yourself, and that boosts confidence as well. So number three, travel allows us to get to know ourselves better. Traveling, especially solo, is an opportunity to discover our own limits and broaden our horizons. Visiting a new place allows us to reconnect with our inner selves and what we really want without the influence of our entourage. This lets us explore the world all while exploring ourselves. What we're trying to say is the inner journey is just as important as a physical journey. Yes. Number four, <clears throat> globe trotters <clears throat> adapt more easily. Being able to adapt to any situation is an essential requirement for many employers. The experiences we gain on the road can also be useful at work. Travelers are gen generally perceived as resourceful and brave. Yes, definitely uh, a good qualities that could turn into or be directed towards anything like a job or whatever you want it to be, uh, a sport, hobby, whatever. Number five, travel gives us a sense of open-mindedness. Definitely. I can't tell you all the ways traveling has opened my mind to so many different cultures, religions, places, peoples, everything. I just... I'm just blown away how, how amazing uh, the world and how big the world is and how beautiful the world is. So <clears throat> travel gives us a sense of open-mindedness. On the road, we quickly learn that cultural references help shape our image of the world. Putting ourselves in someone else's shoes for better understand, uh, to better understand them enlarges our field of vision. Engaging with other mindsets, values, and ideas can be unsettling at first, but it ultimately makes us stronger and more open over time. Travel definitely makes us stronger more open over time definitely uh, number six travel helps us take a step back sometimes getting away provides much needed distance in order to see a problem in a new light we're not talking about running away from the problem but rather giving ourselves a break in order to solve a problem sometimes you have to get out of the problem turn off your your brain and let your conscious your spirit your soul your heart kind of help with the problem and that Actually, I'm reading a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, and that's one of the most common denominators of many successful people is they have that uh, awareness to listen to that inner voice. All right, being conf confronted with other realities is also an opportunity to reevaluate our priorities and learn to put things into perspective. Going on vacation keeps us young. Oh, who doesn't want to stay young? I know I do. Traveling keeps us healthy. This was revealed by a study done by the Global Commission on Aging and Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies in collaboration with the U.S. Travel Association. According to the results uh, reported in the LA Times, women who vacation every six years or less are, for example, more likely to have a heart attack or develop heart disease, as opposed to those who vacation at least twice a year. So that's good to know. It keeps you healthy. Maybe helps give you a purpose. I know the the anticipation of a trip or vacation is one of the main factors that increases one's happiness. Number eight, you'll master at least one foreign language. I don't know about that. I'm pretty good with Spanish, but you know, I definitely need some work. Traveling to a new country can be difficult if you don't speak the language. Good uh, good thing learning a foreign language is excellent for neurons. According to a study published in the Journal of Neurolinguistics by researchers at the University of Pennsylvania, some people even... Uh, Lucy's here. Some people even say that bilingualism delays the onset of Alzheimer's disease, not to mention the fact that mastering one or more foreign languages is a valuable asset on a CV. What's a CV? I'm not sure what a CV is. Okay. And definitely, you don't have to master the language, but what you can do, I mean, you're forced to learn a word here or there, and then that 
definitely helps your neurons, like it says, and helps delay Alzheimer's disease. So it's very good for your brain as well. It helps uh, helps your neurons, your neuroplasticity. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what CV means, not to mention the fact that mastering one or more is a valuable asset on a CV. Not sure. It's got to mean something about this article. It's interesting. All right. Number nine, travel leaves us feeling more zen. Um, according to a study done by the Global Commission on the Asian and Trans-America Center for Retirement Studies in the U.S. Travel Association, after one or two days, 89% of travelers observe a significant decrease in their levels of stress. The challenge remains holding on to this mindset once back home. And stress is a huge factor for uh, health and early death. Stress, keeping stress levels down. That's one of the benefits of, of happiness is your stress levels, humor, your stress levels decrease. Uh, number 10, travel memories are priceless, definitely. According to that 2016 survey by Booking.com, 17 countries, 49% of participants stated that travel brings them more happiness than their wedding day alone. Wow. Maybe it's because we travel more often uh, than we get to get married, or at least we hope so. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. It's more, what if you travel and then get married? Ha, huh, there. How about that? And double your happiness, right? <laughs> All right. So that's fascinating. So Definitely tons of great reasons to travel more and highly recommend traveling. And next up, uh, I'm going over Lebanon. I, I will be in Lebanon next month. Lebanon, Beirut, Baalbek, uh, maybe Tripoli, Byblos, and so on. So Lebanon, officially known as the Lebanese Republic, is a country in Western Asia. It's bordered by Syria to the north and east, and then Israel to the south and east, and Cyprus just across on the water. It's in the Mediterranean on the very eastern part. Uh, it's on the crossroads of the Mediterranean basin and the Arabian hinterland. And it, that's what facilitated its rich history and shaped the cultural identity of religious and ethnic diversity. It's the smallest recognized sovereign state on the mainland Asian continent, and it is uh, capital is Beirut. A fascinating history. I love history, and I love visiting ancient historic places. So the earliest evidence of civilization in Lebanon dates back more than 7,000 years ago, predating recorded history. Lebanon was the home of the Canaanites, a.k.a. the Phoenicians and their kingdoms, a maritime culture that flourished for almost 3,000 years. Even the Persians would hire the Phoenicians to... Uh, to captain their ships and and you know that in 64 bc the region came under the rule of the roman empire eventually became one of the empire's leading centers of christianity and then uh this goes on to say that the ottoman empire flourished from 1516 to 1918 after it was uh, ruled by the romans so there you go. Follow the collapse of the empire after World War One. The five provinces that constitute modern Lebanon came under the French mandate of Lebanon. The French expanded the borders, and yeah, that's so. I guess it probably speaks French too. I know a lot of those, a few Arabic countries like Morocco, they have France or French and Arabic as their their languages. Uh, despite a small size, Lebanon has a developed a well developed a well-known culture and highly influential in the Arab world. Powered by its large diaspora. I don't know what's diaspora. Let's Google that. Diaspora. I don't know. Lebanese people? I think it's... Le I don't know. I can't... I don't know what, what it is. It's just, I click on it, it says Lebanese people by its large. Let's see. Not sure. Okay. Powered by its large diaspora. Let's check google i'm googling this i'm so, i'm interested so we have a lot of time diaspora 
What's diaspora? That's, oh, Jews living outside Israel. Oh, fascinating. The dispersion of the Jews beyond Israel is called diaspora. I didn't know that. All right. Uh, powered by its large diaspora, Jewish uh, people. Interesting. So before the Lebanese Civil War, 1975 to 1990, they had, so there was a big civil war in Lebanon from 1975 to 1990. That's fascinating too. The country, before it, the country experienced a relative calm and renowned renowned prosperity driven by tourism, agriculture, commerce, and banking. Because of its financial power and diversity in heyday, Lebanon was referred to as a Switzerland of the East during the 1960s, and its capital, Beirut, attracted so many tourists, it was known as the Paris of the Middle East. But at the end of the world uh, war, there were extensive efforts to revive the economy and rebuild national infrastructure. The war ended in 1990. In spite of the Troubles Lebanon has the highest human development index and GDP per capita, per capita in Arab world outside of the oil-rich economies of the Persian Gulf. Uh, it says Lebanon has been a member of the UN, United Nations, since its founding in 1945, as well as the Arab League, Non-Aligned Movement, and a couple other leagues. So that's definitely very interesting. Oh, the name Mount Lebanon originates from the Phoenician root, uh, meaning white, apparently from its snow-caped peaks. So that's interesting. Mount Lebanon is a mountain range in Lebanon. And Lebanon as the name of, of an administrative... Nah, I don't need to talk about... Okay. Lebanon as the name of an administrative unit was introduced with the Ottoman reforms of 1861 and the Mount Lebanon Mustafarifate continued in the name of the state of Greater Lebanon in 1920 and eventually in the name of the Sovereign Republic of Lebanon. All right, Lucy. Lucy's here. She says hi. She thinks she's bored. <laughs> That's funny. But there's so much amazing history from the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Archimed Persians, the, the Hellens, the, the, which is the Greeks, the Romans, the Sassanid Persian Empire. There's all, all, tons of tons of history. And the Ottoman Empire, the Romans, I already said the Romans, but just amazing, wonderful history full of ancient ruins that date back, like I said, 7,000 years ago or more. I mean, it's it's crazy. Uh, so I'm definitely going to go there next month and visit some really cool, amazing ruins from the Roman era and even before to the Phoenician era. The Phoenicians are very fascinating and kind of a mysterious uh, place, especially I want to visit Baalbek. Baalbek is like a big amazing place that's really mysterious because it's got some really big pillars uh, that are huge bigger than the stones of the pyramids and it's like a big mystery how they were moved and how they got there and Baalbek is 53 miles northeast of Beirut and there's Greek and Roman uh, ruins in Baalbek also it was also called as Heliopolis and it is home to a Baalbek temple complex, which includes two of the great, the largest and grandest Roman temple ruins, the Temple of Bacchus and the Temple of Jupiter. And 1984 is a, uh, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So definitely excited to see that. And there's tons of cool things to see in this small but mighty but beautiful and amazing country. I'm just going to rent a car and drive around to a few different places. Uh, there's times, the part of the times I like about too is Alexander the Great was was around there after he con uh, conquered the Persian Empire and 
I don't know if he named it Heliopolis or what, but I may have vaguely remember something to that effect. Usually he goes and names places Alexandria, Alexander, or something after himself. It's kind of funny. Uh, okay, let's go to cool things to see in Lebanon. Hey, why not? 20 best things to do in Lebanon? Hey, go for a stroll around the Cornish. Cornish is like a walkway along the beach or the coast. So Beirut... Uh, you could take a stroll along the Cornish. It's got a really nice Cornish. Um, I'm planning on going jogging and watching the sunset. And it's especially really, it's supposed to be very beautiful. Um, munch your way through a platter of meza. Think Lebanon, think food, think meza. M-E-Z-Z-A. When in Beirut, you've got to go eat that. If you're lucky enough to know a Lebanese mom, you'll know that feasting in the country is mandatory. Uh, you'll be pleased to learn that Beirut is awash with fine restaurants serving cuisine tailor-made to expand the waistband. New re restaurants pop up seemingly every week. I know, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Uh, I can't remember his name right off the bat. He he actually died a year or two ago. Oh, I'll, I'll, it'll come to me while I'm talking though. There's uh, He did a show on it where he travels around the world and he eats in different cities and he did a, a TV show on it. All right, walk your way into the past. They have in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, they have these Roman, cool Roman ruins. There's an ancient Roman bath. There's a martyr square, the former Holiday Inn Hotel that's now vacant because of the uh, Leban Lebanon War, Civil War. The city's compact dimensions assure you should be able to cover it all in a day, which is great. It's such a, a small country, though. I love that you could see it all or most of it all in a day. It's very, it makes it very uh, convenient. Uh, it says you could also go hang out and party in a detention center. huh? And this says the name Beirut tends to evoke either war or parties. Why not do one in space, replies uh, Beirut and here we have it B018 the legendary club in Carantina the area's name stems from the quarantine that stood here in the days of the French protectorate it later later became the site of a camp for thousands of Palestinian Kurdish and South Lebanese refugees today and not without controversy it is home to a spiraling sprawling underground club huh fascinating I'm definitely not going there number five bask in the glory of the city of the sun that's it. Awesome, mesmerizing, monumental, the Roman temple at Baalbek, which the Greeks called Heliopolis, or City of the Sun, was one of the most celebrated sanctuaries of the ancient world. It remains a poster child of the Lebanese tourism board, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The ruins are a sight to behold. For sheer grandeur, nothing in the country beats the vista of the imperial Roman columns soaring over the skyline of the Becca Valley. In the summer, the Baalbek International Film Festival brings the monuments to life with an array of plays and concerts. Uh, you could also go shopping in Beirut. They call them the souks, the markets, and a lot of cool places. The 5,000-year-old trading center. Oh, that's fascinating. But if you're uh, um, the souk al-Ahad, is good on Sunday, selling everything from DVDs, antiques, exotic pets. Uh, I don't know if... I'll try to find, sometimes I try to find a dagger or a sword or something, but since I'm flying to a couple other countries, I I contemplate whether I want, you have to check in a bag, I have to check out the rules of flying. Sometimes they'll confiscate it, sometimes they'll let you through, sometimes, you know. Okay, 
Go get your cool on in Gemeza and Mar Mikael. Forget the ancient Roman Cardo Maximus, Armenia Street, and Garold Street. The thoroughfares of Mar Mikael and Gemeza are the beating hearts of youthful Beirut. With the graffiti, galleries, and the gamut, bars and clubs, they form the un- unmistakable core of the Beirut hipster scene. Oh, I can't wait to see the hipster scene. Check out Happy Hour at Chaplin or just hang out in the pavements uh, uh, on a Saturday. Oh, and don't forget to take a peek at the faded grandeur of the traditional houses adjoining the St. Nicholas Stairs. Number eight, explore the campus of Beirut's most famous university. Oh, that sounds fun. American University of Beirut. Number nine, run through the gamut of ancient civilizations at Byblos. This is just north of Beirut. It's not technically in Beirut. I checked out the map. It's closer to Tripoli. Uh, recently selected as the Arab tourism capital for 2016, the UNESCO World Heritage Site of Byblos, known as Jebel, is a gem. Although it sells itself as a state, uh, as a status, as the first Phoenician city, Biblos has a lot more history in it than that. Having hosted Egyptians, Assyrians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Crusaders, Mamluks, and Ottomans, more over. The past thousand years, medieval ramparts, authentic souks, wind down through cobbled streets lined with uh, Balgan Via to a tiny fishing harbor, amble around the Crusader Citadel and a adjacent archaeological site stroll through the souks have a bite to eat in Phoenicia or Adonis and watch the sunset over the sea that carried Phoenician merchants all those millennia ago if you're around in summer don't miss the Biblos International Festival which is headlined by the likes of Massive Attack and BB King I'm definitely stopping there it sounds fantastic I love those ancient cities with cobbled streets I'm going there number 10 visit a military museum in the hills sounds fascinating number 11 embrace elect at the Robert Mawad Museum. Uh, that sounds good. 12, catch an art house flick. Number 13, catch rays and pull shapes at a beach resort. Eh, I'll pass on that. Definitely uh, too much to see in too short of time, but definitely if you have more time, definitely do that. Number 14, drink fine wine on a, a kilometer above sea level. This is in the heart of the Becca Valley, the Chateau Kassara is a haven of calm light years away from the bustle of Beirut. The chateau is Lebanon's biggest and oldest wineries, providing uh, proudly continuing the tradition of wine production established here by the Phoenicians. Ah, fascinating. The views are remarkable and the site itself is fascinating, featuring an ancient Roman cave network stretching for two kilometers underground where 90,000 bottles of the finest wines lie entombed. Wow. Guided tours run daily and there's a restaurant shop and a museum and don't forget to try their Arak. I don't drink, but definitely sounds fascinating to check out number 15 dive into one of the middle east's best archaeological museums the national museum one of its kind in the middle east oh i cannot wait to see that i think i might have to go there number 16 sample armenian cuisine in burj hamoud it's uh burj hamoud Heartbeats at a different pace to the rest of Beirut, a product of war in Armenia during which refugees from Anatolia settled down here. It's an area defined by its diasporic identity, and you would be forgiven by thinking you'd stumble uh, for thinking you stumbled into a lost corner of the Caucasus. Uh, walk around and get a sense of its distinct atmosphere. Explore the senses, sounds, and sights of another culture. Get a taste of pasturma, which is cured beef, pasturma mano, then move on to ono for an induction into Armenian Lebanese cuisine. If you have time, seek out Darsko on Maras Street, a tiny record shop run by DJ Ernesto Chahud. Oh, that sounds great. I'm definitely going to try the different foods there. Number 17, breathe in the monastic calm at Betadin. It's an Ottoman-era palace rising out of the tree-clad mountains of the Chouf, the Chauf.
Number 18, take a cable ride car ride in Junia. Junia. It's a nine-minute cable ride car, cable car ride from the Bay of Junia to the Lady of Lebanon Shrine in Harissa. Well worth it, especially at sunset. Number 19, witness a collision of cultures at the Al Omari Mosque. Mosques are always cool to visit. They're beautiful, unique, and uh, just great to see. And that was a, a number 20, indulge your inner culture uh, vulture at the Beirut Art Center. Definitely want to, if you want to check out art and all sorts of cool, beautiful um, stuff related to art, go to the Beirut Art Center. And that's the top 20 things to do in Beirut that I checked out. And there's actually top 25 things to see and do in Lebanon this summer as well, I just checked out. And there's everything from the Batara Gorge Waterfall, the Lady of Lebanon, where you take that cable ride up. They have the beautiful uh, Rauche Sea Rock. I know I did not pronounce it right, but there's a beautiful sea rock. They have the Cedars of Lebanon. I think that's called, uh, I forget what it's called, but the Cedars of Lebanon. Uh, there's a forest of cedar trees. Uh, Lebanon is predominantly known for its cedar trees, uh, hence why it occupies the national flag of Lebanon, which is fascinating. Uh, the Chowan Waterfall, there's all sorts of beautiful places in Lebanon. There's a Jeda Grotto, which is like, uh, a breathtaking cave covered in limestone that was formed for over thousands of years for a few dollars. You could travel through the natural river and sneak a couple illegal photos. I guess you're not allowed to take photos, but eh. And then you could see a beautiful lake in the southern region of the Bekaa Valley. That's Lake Karaun. And then this talks about Temple of Jupiter and Baalbek. Downtown Beirut pretty beautiful, too. It's funny, there's a picture of a big clock tower, and it reminds me of the clock tower in Pasadena, California. Number 14, Becca Valley looks beautiful with the snow mountains in the background. Number 15, Masaila Castle in North Lebanon. It's like this castle built on top of a rock. It looks amazing. Kafraya, western region of Becca Valley, famous for its vineyards and amazing wine. It's if you're not interested in the family, if if you're interested in taking the family or group of friends out to a memorable lunch, this is a place. Uh, Afka, Afka Waterfall looks beautiful. Actually, looks really beautiful, like something out of a movie. Uh, Tanayel Walk, another beautiful. A Sidon Sea Castle. There's this castle out in the ocean. Looks really cool. I guess it was built in 4000 BC. Fascinating. I think, what is that? The That's the Phoenicians. Oh, that's so cool. 20 Al. Kiam Restaurant, that's in uh, southern Lebanon. And 21, Monastery of St. Anthony in the northern part of Lebanon. It's a holy monastery that accom uh, accommodates for monks who are on the journey to become priests. Number 22, another waterfall, Yachoch Waterfall. 23, another waterfall called Kafar Hilda Waterfall. 24, there's a beautiful mountain range called Lak Luk, Lak Lauk. 25, Mar Mikhail Stairs. All oh, beautiful painted multicolor stairs. Reminds me of uh, a place in um, Puerto Rico. They had a lot of different colored uh, places. Uh, the, these stairs are seen all over the world. Uh, Lebanon, let's see, it says it's inherited everything in other countries previous, uh, continuously boast about from the nightlife, historical artifacts, hotels, restaurants, cars, peoples, and our food. So if you're planning your next trip, Lebanon should be on your number one. And that's one of the reasons, a lot of the reasons why I'm going to Lebanon, it's going to be my first country for the year, make, make it number 56 total. And I'm excited to visit Lebanon. It's a beautiful place. Originally, I was going to go to northern Iraq, fly in Erbil, uh, which is 
Kurdistan. They call it Kurdistan, northern Iraq. But since there's a little bit of issue that just happened with um, the U.S. bombing uh, an Iranian uh, official in Baghdad, military official, I'm going to have to pass on Iraq for a little bit until that place calms down a little more. Not that I'm going to Baghdad, but I wouldn't mind because Babylon, ancient Babylon is just south of Baghdad. It's one of the most ancient historical cool places in the world right in the middle of a giant war <laughs> war place you know a place of unrest in iraq i wish it was a little bit more open but eh, i guess that's part of the draw a little bit of danger and uncertainty and so lebanon will be another one of my middle eastern countries and then from there i'll probably i'm gonna head down to egypt i'm gonna go to luxor so i'll go to luxor and then cairo maybe alexandria and then from there i'll go uh head west start making my way back into Tanis, ancient Carthage, another amazing place where the Phoenicians were. And that'll be my second country for the year. I'm trying to go 10 countries this year. Uh, last year I did 18 and that was way too much. I was burned out. I kind of <clears throat> lost the excitement and joy towards the end there of the year. Uh, traveling is definitely fun, but it's also tiring. And you don't want to do too much, but you also don't want to do too little. Too little would be none. So definitely uh, go travel. And then from Tunisia, I'll take, take a plane back to Paris and fly home from Paris to L.A. And so that's my trip coming up next month, and I'm excited about it. And I'll probably do some more podcasts while I'm there, too. Definitely fun to do. I like to record and like tell these little stories that... Well, actually, Tyre is a place in Lebanon. Have you heard of the story of Alexander the Great and Tyre? Let's check it out. Let's see if I could find it real fast. Alexander the Great. It's a really cool story. He, uh, there was a siege in 332 BC, the Siege of Tyre. Let's see if I could find a, a place. Yeah, I'm going to go over this real fast. I love this historic part. It might, I might not be real fast. It might be 10 minutes, but whatever. All right. If you guys are interested in history and Alexander's, Alexander the Great's Siege of Tyre in 332 BC, after defeating Darius III at the Battle of Issus in November 333 BC, Alexander the Great marched his army, 35 to 40,000 people strong, into Phoenicia, Phoenicia, where he received the capitulation of, oh no, the okay here we go received a capitulation of biblos and sidon tyrian tyrian envoys met with alexander whilst he was on the march declaring their in, declaring their intent to honor his wishes so biblos was a city in lebanon sidon is another city in lebanon but tyrian envoys met with alexander apparently they were uh not going to capitulate or not going to surrender to him. So Alexander's request was simple. He wished to sacrifice to Heracles in Tyre. The Phoenician god Melkart was roughly the equivalent of the Greek Heracles. Or uh, The Tyrians recognized this as a Macedonian ploy to occupy the city and refused, saying instead that Alexander was welcome to sacrifice to Heracles in Old Tyre, which was built upon the mainland. Old Tyre held no strategic importance. It was undefended, and the Tyrian navy was stationed in the harbors of New Tyre. New Tyre. The Tyrian refusal to capitulate to Alexander's wishes was tantamount to a declaration of war. But 
Despite the youthful Alexander's growing reputation, the Tyrians had every reason to be confident. In addition to a powerful navy and mercenary army, their city lay, lay roughly a half a mile offshore, and according to the account of the historian Arian, the walls facing the landward side towered to an impressive 150 feet or 46 meters in height. Whether they actually stood that high is doubtful and open to debate, but even so, the defense of Tyre was formidable and had withstood a number of mighty sieges in the past. The Tyrians began the preparation and evacuated most of the women and children to their colony at Carthage, which is in Tunisia, which is a good distance west of um, modern-day Tunisia. So leaving behind perhaps 40,000 people, Carthage also promised to send more ships and soldiers. Alexander was aware of Tyre's supposedly impregnable and convened a council of war, explaining to his generals the vital importance of securing all Phoenician cities before advancing on Egypt. Tyre was a stronghold for the Persian fleet and could not be left behind to threaten Alexander's rear. In a last-ditch attempt to prevent a long and exhaustive siege, he dispatched heralds to Tyre demanding their surrender. Um, but the Macedonians were executed and their bodies hurled into the sea. I guess that's their answer. They said no. So the opening moves of the sea. Negotiations having failed, Alexander began his operation in January 332 BCE. After occupying good uh, occupying old Tyre, he began to construct a causeway across the channel towards the walls of Tyre using rocks, timbers, rubbles taken from the buildings of the old city. This is a half a mile. So initially work progressed well. The water near the mainland was shallow and the bottom muddy, but as the causeway lengthened, the Macedonians and Greeks began to run into, run into trouble. The seafloor shelved sharply near the city to a depth of 18 feet. Work slowed to a snail pace, and the uh, work gangs found themselves increasingly harassed by missile fire from the city walls. Alexander constructed two siege towers from timber covered with rawhide and positioned them at the end of the causeway. Artillery engines at the top of the towers were able to return fire at the walls, and the work gangs erected timber palisades as an added measure of protection. Work preceded. Alexander spent much of his time on the mole, dispensing small gifts of money to, to his sweating laborers and leading by personal example. The Tyrians then initiated their first major defensive attack of the siege. It took an old horse transport ship and filled it to gun walls, uh, the gun walls with combustible material, chaff, torches, pitch, and sulfur. They slung double yard dams from the mast into these hooked cauldrons filled with the volatile inflammable oil. The stern of the ship was ballasted to lift the bows clear of the water and two galleys towed her in towards the end of the mole, driving her and themselves aground. The crews lit the materials aboard the fire ship and all managed to swim to safety. The tip of the mole became an inferno as a ship burnt, igniting the two towers. A host of Tyrians and small boats rowed out from the city and landed on various points of the causeway, engaging the besiegers as they frantically attempted to douse the flames. Siege engines were burnt and the palisades along the edge of the mole destroyed. Alexander musters his fleet. The attack was a great success for the Tyrians, but they had reckoned without the resolve of Alexander, Alexander the Great who now ordered the causeway to be widened and more towers to be built. Realizing that naval superiority was the key to taking Tyre, he temporarily left the siege and set off for Sidon to fetch his own ships. In addition, he also received vessels from Byblos, Aridus, Rhodes, Lycia, Cilicia, and Macedon. The kings of Cyprus sent another 120 ships to Sidon. In all, Alexander had about 220 ships. 
While awaiting the arrival of the various naval ships, he spent 10 days inland engaging in minor operations in Arabian territory. Upon his return to Sidon, he was pleased to note the arrival of Cleander, whom he had sent to Greece to recruit soldiers uh, with about 4,000 mercenaries. Wasting no further time, Alexander sailed for Tyre. His flagship was on the right of the fleet, and when within clear view of Tyre, the fleet halted and held station, allowing the full impact of their appearance to dawn on the observers on the city walls. The Tyrians were taken by surprise. They had no idea until the moment that Alexander's fleet had swollen in size. They were now vastly outnumbered and the promised help from Carthage had failed to materialize. Against all odds, a naval engagement was out of the question. All the Tyrians could do was blockade the entrances to the two harbors they had. They floated a boom across the mouth of the southern or Egyptian harbor and moored triremes in line across the entrance of the northern harbor. Alexander tested the strength of the countermeasures with an assault on Sidon at the harbor, in which three Tyrian galleys were rammed head-on and sunk, but he did not launch an all-out naval attack. Instead, he ordered his Cyprian contingent to blockade the northern harbor, and the Phoenician ships maintain a vigil at the southern end of the island. Siege engines were mounted on the mole and in anchored ships and commenced a sustained bombardment of the defenses. Throughout all the operations, both sides engaged in a long and bitter artillery duel, and the Tyrians poured cauldrons of red-hot sand over the walls onto the besieging ships carried by the winds. It set vessels alight and penetrated clothing and armor, reducing men to charred, blistered agony. Although effective, such methods could hardly have endured the defenders to the besiegers. Realizing their imminent danger, the Tyrians spread sails across the mouth of the northern harbor and thus concealed uh, prepared a sortie. Thirteen galleries were manned with the finest oarmen and marines of the defenders that the defenders could muster. In the heat of the Mediterranean afternoon, they silently rowed, uh, rowed out of the harbor in a single line. Most of the Cyprian ships blockading the city and harbor, Sidon Harbor, were undermanned, and the Tyrian, Tyrians achieved total surprise, pressing home a ferocious, ferocious assault to the accompaniment, accompaniment of roared war cries. Two of the ships were sunk and many more scattered. Alexander boarded a ship and personally led the counterattack with five triremes and whatever quine quoremes were ready to battle. Sailing around the island, he fell on the Tyrian flotilla, who immediately broke off the engagement and fled for the northern harbor. An unspecified number of Tyrian ships were damaged in the confusion action with fall, which followed with Two galleys being captured in the mouth of the harbor. Most of the Tyrians managed to swim ashore to the safety of the city. And the final assault, Alexander brought in, uh, brought his ships directly beneath the walls and began to pound them with battering rams. Greek forces at the northern end of the island attempted to make a breach but failed. A small breach was made in the southern defenses, but a Macedonian attack across causeways resulted only in casualties and failure. Alexander waited for three days before resuming his assault. Wilt's diversionary attacks occupied the defenders' attentions. Two ships with bridging equipment approached the southern breach. Alexander himself was in command of the force, which cons uh, consisted mostly of elite Hippaspis and Pezhaitori. The Macedonians managed to force their way onto the wall. Admetus, commander of the Hippaspis, was the first man on the battlements and was killed by a spear as he exhorted his men onward. Nevertheless, the assault was a success, and soon the Macedonians were pouring down the city itself, killing and looting after the initial breach was forced. Alexander 
commands were swollen as more and more Greeks and Macedonians succeeded in entering the city from various points, including the harbors. The surviving Tyrians fell back to the Agonorium, an old fortress in the northern sector of the city, but only managed to hold out for a brief period before they were slaughtered. The besiegers' blood was up, and after a long and bitter siege, they were not inclined, inclined to be merciful. For months they had endured grinding labor, been tormented by artillery and archery, and witnessed the slaughter of their captured comrades on the city wall. 6,000 Tyrians were slaughtered when the city was taken, another 2,000 sacrificed on the beach. A further 30,000 were sold into slavery. Amongst those spared were the king and his family and a number of Carthaginian pilgrims who took sanctuary in the temple of Malkart. Macedonian losses accounted to 400 slain. With the siege finally over, Started in January, ended in July, Alexander made his sacrifice to Heracles and held a torch race and triumphal procession through the streets of the city. With Tyre subjugated, Alexander could turn his attention to subduing Gaza and Egypt. And that's the story of Alexander the Great and Tyre. Fascinating, six months it took him to take over the city. So that gives you a good lesson in persistence, uh, hard work, diligence, never giving up, failing, but keeping pressing forward. So it's a, it's a really good story. Definitely uh, want to go on a more Alexander the Great stories later. And that's about it. I'm going on 44 minutes, my second podcast of the day. And yeah, sometimes I get a little tired from talking a lot, but this is good. It's been exciting. Oh, uh, before I forget, this podcast and every other podcast is brought to you by my travel store, Super Travel X, www.supertravelx.com, where you can find all the cool travel accessories, gears, all sorts of cool stuff that you'll love. Definitely use code SUPER10 for 10% off all those cool travel stuff. And that's it. Thank you for listening to Super Travel Experience Podcast, episode 39. And hopefully we'll get uh, my friend Jed on uh, within the week to uh, talk about his Galapagos trip. And thank you guys. Thank you for listening. And also don't forget my other new podcast, Planet Positivity is amazing. I'm pouring my whole heart into it. It's doing very well. I'm excited about it. And check it out if you get a chance. Live well, be well. Have a great life, great year, great everything, guys. Thank you. You're awesome.